gifts bring us closer to one another. A gift is a sign of love and respect, a symbol of intimacy and connection. In this episode, we hope that you will experience the gift that will lift your spirits, strengthen your relationships, and bring you closer to your Creator. Join us now. Life has its ups and downs. Life can be fun. Life is sometimes hectic. And life is full of choices. Welcome to Venture, the podcast that brings the biblical truth to the ventures that we face in this world and live in today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Venture Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Wills, lead pastor at Chandler Acres Church in Bellevue, Nebraska, and as always, so thankful to be able to speak to you guys today. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called The Gift, and uh, specifically uh, in these episodes, we are talking about uh, three different gifts that the the magi or the wise men uh, brought to to worship Jesus, and so we our hope our hope is that uh, we are preparing your hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, this Christmas season. Now, as we think about this and we visualize what it would have been like at the time when the magi brought in their gifts, I'm guessing when you hear. You know, three the three the three wise men or the three, the three magi, however you want to word that. Um, I'm guessing that many of you think about a manger scene, maybe one like at Grandma's house, or maybe you have one, or maybe one that you see at church every year, or whatever it might be. What I hope I would be right, okay? Because any um, anytime we see those, you know, and if you do, uh, what you're probably seeing is something like what I see in my mind. You're you're probably seeing, uh, like I talked about, seeing the three wise men with flowing robes made of porcelain, right? <laughs> and you probably see some farm animals, maybe a sheep, cow, uh, maybe a donkey. Uh, chances are you might see some shepherds, right? And if the roof is pitched, you might see an angel on top of the roof or, or maybe either angels sitting on the side of the, the manger and, and things. But uh, we all know, of course, um, you have Mary and Joseph and you, of course, have baby Jesus is sitting there glowing, and that's because there's a nightlight underneath the cradle, right? I uh, hope, hope you, some of you know what I'm talking about, because my grandma used to have one that just, baby, baby Jesus was lit up because there was a, a nightlight underneath it. The challenge is, though, is most likely that there were not three wise men at this moment, okay? Uh, there could have been many more. We don't know how many wise men there, there were. And um, we also know uh, that, we, they, that at that time, they would have been in a house by the time the wise men would have traveled the distance to get to where Jesus was, okay? And we talked a little bit about this last episode, um, so if you, if you want to go back and catch up with that, uh, feel, free to, feel free to do that. Stop right now and go back there. You don't have to. Uh, today's message will, will feed right into uh, standalone, and you'll be understanding everything. But when they got there, Jesus was very likely not an infant, uh, most scholars believe that he was uh, somewhere around two years old, maybe maybe sometimes uh, some people believe maybe closer to three years old. Uh, and so that changes my visual of wise men bowing down, right? Because they're now bowing down to a toddler. Because how many of you have a two-year-old or how many of you have ever had one or how many of you have been around one? Most likely at this point, most of you are like, okay, I have been, yeah. Well, see, I used to judge parents of two-year-olds before I had children, Um your your kid would be in a restaurant or or just some store or whatever, and 
They'd be banging on the table or throwing a fit in the store, wow, 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 crying. And, and, I, and I would judge you. I, let's just be honest. I would, I would judge you. And all this before I had a two-year-old on my own, though. And then I learned that you don't negotiate with terrorists, <laughs> okay? I've learned that once I had my two-year-olds. But when you have a two-year-old uh, out of control, you're like, I'll give you anything, kid. And you become the worst parent, but at the same time, the happiest parent. You're like, here's my iPhone. Take it. Play Baby Shark for the 900th million time, okay? I'll give you candy. I'll have, you can have a pony. I'll give you a race car. Whatever it is, just stop, okay? So this changes my visual when the Magi wise men are bowing down and offering gifts to, to perhaps a, a toddler. Our, our main text that we're looking at um, these, uh, these couple of weeks is Matthew's Gospel, uh, and it shows this in Matthew 2, 10, 11. This is what it says. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and, the, and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we talked about this last week. They're the unusual gifts in our day and age. We know that. Uh, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But, but, every, but they are very valuable gifts, okay? Very useful gifts. And, and they're gifts that had a symbolic nature to prophecies of who Jesus would become, right? The Magi gave Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was the valuable, valuable um, money at that time. It's been a value. It's been valuable um, for cross nature, and it has been through history, okay? Gold symbolizes the kingship of Jesus, Jesus as king, and frankincense, as we talked about last week, actually symbolized Jesus as our great high priest who, who would come offer his life, and yet he's one who sympathizes with us. He, uh, he understands. Today, we're going to talk about the gift of myrrh, which may, many people probably don't know anything about myrrh. Myrrh is a valuable gum-like substance. Uh, it's actually used 17 different times in the Bible. Occasionally, myrrh would have been used as an antiseptic. For example, if you know the story of Jesus on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain, but, but Jesus rejected that because he wanted to bear the full force and weight of our sins. More commonly, though, myrrh was known as an ingredient used to embalm the dead. In other words, myrrh would have been used when Jesus gave his life to help prepare his body for burial. So scholars agree, and I wholeheartedly believe, that myrrh represents Jesus as the suffering servant or, or the Lamb of God, who was born to die for the forgiveness uh, of our sins. And so what I want to do in the remainder of our time is look at an Old Testament prophetic passage from, um, from Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah chapter 53, to be specific, and show you how the, the myrrh represents Jesus, the suffering servant, who was born to suffer on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins, all right? So I want to ask you a question before I kind of dive in here is, how many of you are, are football fans? You know, uh, imagine if you will, if I had the power to predict the, the two teams that were going to be in the Super Bowl th this year, you know? Uh, it'd be rather easier this year because the season's almost almost done, okay? So you kind of eliminate a lot of teams right now because they're not even going to make the playoffs. Uh, and so you'd be, well, that'd be kind of impressive and perhaps lucky a little bit. Well, imagine if I could predict the exact two teams and the exact who winner was and the final score, okay? Down to the point of the, who would win, uh, which team would win by. That would be mind-blowing, Right. And if you're, a, if you're a gambler, you'd be like, Dan, I want to be your friend, right? 
Imagine this, though. Let's just say that the world is still here, still here, and football is still popular 700 years from now. If I could predict the two opposing teams in the Super Bowl 700 years from now and the exact score of that game, that would make me a prophet like no other, right? Isaiah essentially did something very, very similar. He prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ a very detailed account of what the suffering servant Jesus would endure on our behalf. And so we're going to look at that in a moment, but first I'm going to show you our problem because we have a very real problem that I'm going to show you that show you the price that Jesus paid for our unsinful problem so we could forgive, be forgiven and experience eternal life. Okay, but let's start with our problem. We're going to see it in Isaiah 53, like I said, starting with uh, verse 6. Listen to what verse 6 says. It says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Isaiah says, you are like a sheep. And unfortunately, that is not a compliment. Okay, if Isaiah would have said, all of us like lions, that might have been a compliment. Or all of us like eagles, that might have been a compliment. But, but when he compared us to sheep, he was essentially saying, you are not the brightest crayon in the box, or, or you're a couple fries short of a Happy Meal, okay? Uh, you, you can train a lot of animals. You can, you can train a dog. You can train a bird. You can even train a hamster, believe it or not. You can train an elephant, a pig, um, and you can even, and I'll admit it, you can even train some cats, right? But, but, but you can't train a sheep. Have you ever gone to the circus to watch the train sheep show? No. Okay. Have you ever had someone talk about their pet sheep and say, hey, come over here and watch my sheep shake hands? No. Okay. Sheep's not a compliment. All we like sheep have gone astray. And so sheep were basically known for three things. Three things. They are weak. Okay. Number two, they're witless. And number three, they're wayward. All right. Three sheep were known for three things, weak, witless, and wayward. Uh, speaking of sheep as being weak, they were pretty much defenseless. If a coyote or, or some kind of other animal comes after a sheep, how can a sheep defend itself, right? They can't go, right, with their fangs. They've got no fangs. They, they've got no quills. They can shoot. They're, they're not fast. They can't fly away. They, they don't blend in. They're not a chameleon. Can't change colors, right? They don't have a poisonous tongue or spit venom or anything like that. They are essentially defenseless. Not only are they defenseless, but they don't even say to the other sheep, hey, you run that way and I'll run this way and then one of us will live, okay? No, sheep huddle and they say, hey, take your pick, whichever one you want, all right? They're, they're weak and they're witless. In other words, they don't think for themselves. Sheep tend to follow the crowd. If one sheep does dumb sheep stuff, the other sheep do dumb sheep stuff too. By the way, say that three times really fast. Sheep do dumb sheep stuff too, okay? <laughs> Be careful though, you might say a bad word. Anyway, in fact, um, this is a true story. I want you to look this up later on after you're done listening to me. This is, this is fantastic. It's a, it's a true story, I promise. In the year 2005 in Turkey, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other off of a cliff. 1,500. You would think after the first one, second one, third one, fourth one, fifth one, sixth one, seventh one would have said, you know what? This is not a good plan. I'm going to back up a little bit, okay? But no, 1,500 sheep followed each other off of the cliff. The bad news is 400 of them died. The good news is it was the first 400. The rest lived because the first 400 basically made a, a sheep pillow, seriously. And the rest of them bounced off the dead ones and survived. True story. Look it up. 2005, Turkey, 
just type in 1500 sheep jump off cliff or fall off cliff, okay? Anyway, when Isaiah calls a sheep, it's not a compliment. Sheep are also wayward. They wander. Well, where are you going, little sheep? I don't know, looking for something. Maybe happiness over here. Oh, and if I get those shoes, I'll be happy. Nope, now I'm just in debt. Oh, if I have this experience, I'll be great. Oh, no, that that didn't go so well. That kind of hurt. Everybody else did that, so I'm going to try it. No, no, no. Sheep are wayward. They wander. When the prophet Isaiah said, all of us are like sheep, he wasn't saying, hey, wow, you're amazing. He was saying, you need a lot of help because you tend to go away from God's path and you tend to choose your own. Here's what scripture says. Look at it again, starting with verse six again. We're going to read it again, six and seven. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Have you ever been hurt, mistreated, rejected, overlooked, unjustly criticized, or misunderstood? Jesus understands. We talked about this in the last episode. Jesus understands because it was prophesied about him. Go back and look at verses 3 through 5 in Isaiah 53. Listen to what it says. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. That's what Jesus would do for us. It seems like when people look at a baby born in a manger, sometimes people will seem to say, that was a holy event, right? I get it, but, but that happened a long time ago. But, so what does that mean for me being today? Jesus died on a cross and he rose again. Well, what does that really mean? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I devote my life to him? When you understand the magnitude of his suffering and the depths of his love, you won't casually say, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian, yeah, and I go to church when I have time, but, and, I, and of course I'll pray, you know, if there's food or whatever. No, when you understand what he did for us, the decoration of divine love, the only reasonable response is to wholeheartedly, completely follow him. I'll just try to describe it, okay? I, I probably won't do an adequate job of it, but I'm going to give it a shot. You start with, with just the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the place that Jesus wrestled with God. When he got a glimpse of the suffering that was to come, then he said to his disciples, hey, you guys watch and pray. But they fell asleep. And all alone, he cries out to God, knowing what is to come. He says, God, would you remove this cup of suffering from me? And then he fell to the ground and blood dripped from his brow. The medical term is the word, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing it, I apologize. It's hemosidoceros, okay? It's something you experience under extreme trauma. When your capillaries burst and blood is mingled with your sweat, okay? And he falls to the ground and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's how bad it was. He bled uh, from his, his brow, okay? He bled from his brow. And, and, and he's going, God, can we do this another way? And then he declares faithfully, yet, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Then one of his own, Judas, betrays him with a kiss, and then Jesus is arrested, falsely accused, unfairly tried, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. 
He would be stripped naked, publicly exposed, feeling humiliated and ashamed. They would put the crown of thorns on his head, two-inch thorns going into his brow, and the beating would start. And again and again and again, they would whip him across the back. Wearing a signet ring, they would beat him in the face, and they would take clubs and pound it in his, across his head, burying those thorns deeper into his brow. They also would pull out his beard, and that would cause him to be so disfigured that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then weak, suffering, and alone, they'd give him the crossbar, weighing 100-plus pounds, force him to carry it 650 yards on a path known as the Way of Suffering to Golgotha, to be crucified on the cross. They would take the nails, seven inches or so in length, and drive them into his wrists and through his feet, hanging him up on the cross while his back is so bloody, most likely his internal organs are exposed, sweeping across the rough, beaten cross. The only way that he could breathe is to pull himself up with his wrists full of nails and push himself up on his feet, trying to catch a breath. And then it wouldn't be long before his shoulders would be dislocated and his legs would give out. And he was slowly, slowly, slowly unable to catch a breath. Hanging under the heat of the day, shamefully naked, exposed, as the creation mocks the Son of God, the Creator. And that was only the beginning. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore the sins of the world became everything vile and filthy and unholy and demonic. He became that. And God, in his righteousness and holiness, who could not look upon sin, pulls away. And the intimate fellowship Jesus had always known with his father is broken. And in probably the most agonizing moment of his life, Jesus cries out, My God, my God. Why have you pulled away? Why aren't you here with me? Why have you forsaken me? They offered him the wine mixed with myrrh, the very thing that they would use to embalm him at his death. And he says, no, I don't want something to numb the pain. I will finish what my father set me to do. And he declares it in faith. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. In the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this ever took place, he prophetically declared what this child, the innocent one, born of a virgin, never sinned, would endure on behalf of our sinfulness. Isaiah continued of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 9, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared what he died without, that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Let's pause there for a second. How did did Isaiah know that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, would offer his grave 700 years later? It's a prophecy. Let's read on. Look at verse 11. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. That's what he did for us. Think about it for a moment. What is it that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions? What sets Christianity apart from Islam, Buddhism, New Age, Hinduism? What is it that sets it apart? It is the bloody death of an innocent victim. That's what sets it apart. 
It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to, to something known as the Passover. Once a year, God would execute his, his temporary judgment on the sins of the people. He would unleash the most fierce force in the world, his righteous judgment on the sins of mankind. What could protect you from this judgment? Well, the, the blood of an innocent lamb. A family would take a, a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, sacrifice a lamb, eat the meat of the lamb, and take the blood of the lamb and put some on the doorpost, on the top and on, the bo- and on both sides. Then death would pass over the house because that family was saved by the blood of an innocent lamb. When you think about that, can I, can I just say it clearly again this week, as I said last week, all that's just a little bit weird, right? It's confusing. It seems completely unfair. And yet, all the way back in that historic event, we see the cross foreshadowed. When, when the blood of the lamb was put on the top of the doorpost and it would clearly drop down on both sides, you would see a picture of the instrument of torture on which the lamb of God would shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. What separates Christianity from all other world religions is that, that God would become flesh and he would be pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be made whole and by the stripes he bore upon his back, we would be healed. So when you visualize it, the wise man will offer him myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead. You understand God was foreshadowing what was to come. The Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. Jesus understood this, and he prophesied it about himself. This is what Jesus declared in Luke's gospel. Uh, it's Luke 9, 22 and 23. Listen, this is directly from Jesus himself. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed. But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Let me tell you what Jesus did not say. He didn't say, hey, you just say, pray some prayer, and then you're going to be blessed and prosperous every day the rest of your life. He didn't say that. He didn't say you pray a little prayer of salvation and you do whatever you want, and Jacuzzi Jesus is going to set your sins free. He did not say that. What he said was, you want to be my disciple, then you deny yourself. It's not about you. Then he said to take up your cross. In other words, you die to yourself, and then he said, follow me. It's not a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's not a meal upgrade, okay? It's not something that helps us feel good while we celebrate Santa and go to grandma's house. It's God becoming flesh, born of a virgin, not inheriting the sin nature of an earthly father, but the heavenly nature of a divine father. He never sinned. And when you understand that, it overwhelms and overtakes your life. What did he do? He endured this for you, for, for your lives and mine, for our lustfulness, for our hypocrisy, our judgmental spirit, our greed, our anger, our unforgiveness, and our wicked hearts, and many other things. And so God sent Magi to give him gold, prophetically declaring he would be king of kings and lord of lords and frankincense to tell us he was our great high priest, that the veil is ripped. He gave his life so we could have access to come boldly before the throne of grace for our high priest receives for us because he understands, right? And myrrh, an embalming material, declaring that this one, this child, was born to die. He was born to die. And that's why it's called the gospel. It is the good news beyond measure that our God would do that for us, 
that his son Jesus would be crushed for our rebellion, beaten so we could be made whole, and by his stripes we are healed. And because of what he did, he died and rose again. I don't follow him because I have to, because it makes me a better person, because it gives me something to do every now and then on Sundays and preach a message, but because of who he is and what he did, I give him my whole life. My question today for you is, are you ready to give your whole life? Amen. That concludes another episode of Venture Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll join us next week as we step away from the hustle of the holidays and into the peace you've been searching for. Join us as we conclude the series, The Gift. Talk to you soon. If you'd like to know more about Venture Podcast or Chandler Acres Church, or if you'd like to support this ministry, please visit us at chandleracreschurch.com.